0: Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford Canine is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like Canine Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford Canine also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website www.fordcanine.com Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford.
1: Hello to all the listeners and subscribers out there on this podcast, Canine's Talking Sense. I wanted to talk to you guys before this current episode comes out and just say what a wonderful year it's been. Uh, We had a lot of great episodes, um, a lot of growth within Canine's Talking Sense, as well as uh, Ford Canine, my other company uh, where I do all the dog stuff at. I really wanted to let you guys know how much I appreciated uh, the support that you guys have given throughout the year, uh, the feedback, the questions, everything in general. I cannot express how grateful I am for all of you. So uh, as this episode is the last episode of season two, uh, season three already has a few episodes recorded. We are on the path for even more information to be shared, more ideas. I've also kicked off my YouTube channel, which is viewed to search Ford Canine on YouTube. Uh, you'll find the YouTube channel, and actually on that YouTube channel, what I do is do videos based off of questions that I've received from all of you guys that listen to Canines Talking Sense. Um, Occasionally, I'll do other topics as well, but my goal is to, at least weekly or at least twice a month, do videos where I am answering questions or conducting demonstrations uh, on camera of various detection dog topics. So, with that said, if you guys could still continue to send me your questions, your comments, your ideas, topics that we could host or conduct here on Canine's Talking Sense, not only on uh, the podcast, but also Canine's Talking Sense webinars. We also would like to hear from you as uh, what your input is for future guests, uh, others that you'd want to hear me interview and talk to, uh, so that way that information from that individual can be shared to everybody. A lot of times people have uh, some great resources that are kind of just in the shadows, so to speak, in this canine industry. And a lot of times, it's nice to give them an ability to have a conversation, answer questions, and just share information. So uh, Season 3 kicks off, uh, obviously, just after January. Uh, The first week or two of January, I believe we're going to have the first episode probably around uh, week two of January. And we'll have uh, additional guests about every two weeks or so from there. So, again, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the feedback. As usual, uh, you can always reach me at info, I-N-F-O, at Ford, F-O-R-D, com. Also, go visit the new and improved FordK9.com website, where it has all the classes that we offer here in Las Vegas, as well as classes that I'm doing Uh, traveling out and about. There's a whole new calendar at the bottom of the classes page. You can scroll through that calendar, see what we have going on here, where I'm going to be at, and on that calendar, if it's an event in another state or what have you, you can just click on that event, read the details of the event, and you'll see the person who's hosting it, how to contact them. Maybe you're close by and you want to attend that seminar. Uh, All that information is right there. We've tried to. Uh, do a whole new, uh, much easier to use website uh, for canines talking sense to include the new webinars page, which is now hosted on Vimeo. You can go there and watch uh, any of the old uh, past I uh, say, uh, webinars we've conducted. You can either watch them one at a time, or if you join the Ford Canine Club channel every month, I'll be just putting in either the new webinar as well as uh, one or two from the past, so that way for your 25 bucks a month, you get multiple webinars, or you can get one webinar at a time on the individual webinar channel. So uh, I think that pretty much covers everything new going on here for the new year in 2021. Let's all cross our fingers that uh, 2021 ends up being a lot easier for us to get out and about and travel and reconnect with one another uh but in lieu of that we have things like the podcast and webinars and videos and things like that so in the meantime we've been doing what we have to do to survive and share information and still get out there and work our dogs but again thank you and we look forward to seeing you guys out there in 2021 now on to the episode hello and welcome to this next episode of K9's talking sense On this episode, I am continuing with a theme that involves explosive detection. However, we're going to get into a little bit more about odor and chemistry of odor. And the guest I have on has a company, but also comes from a operational background, served in our military. And without giving away even more, and I'll let you explain it, I would like to welcome Todd Wilbur from Precision Explosives to the show. Todd, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you.
1: Absolutely. So for our guest, let us know what your background is and a little bit about your company and how you got to where you're at today.
2: I started off as a uh, military bomb technician in the Army, later went on to become a member of the United States Army's Delta Force as a bomb technician. And uh, later, after leaving the Army, I went out to... uh, Los Alamos National Lab, and then later Lawrence Livermore National Lab, and did a lot of uh, nuclear counterterrorism and incident response work, as well as some research on explosives and how to uh, access them, even though they're in a very sensitized state. I later in life became a uh, State Department contractor and did a couple of tours in Afghanistan as a bomb technician and worked on hundreds of IEDs and tens of thousands of pounds of homemade explosives. That helped to really solidify my understanding of what a transnational threat is with regard to homemade explosives. Uh, From there, I went to the Energetic Materials Research and Testing Center at New Mexico Tech, where I'm still adjunct faculty there, and did um, research on TATP and HMTD specifically and had a, a group of... Uh, grad students that participated in that and helped generate their degrees. And uh, since then, I've uh, come back to Virginia and formed Precision Explosives. It was uh, actually kind of at the request of some customers to be able to have access to explosives exposed to me to a greater depth of what the canine community needs. Uh, I'm not a canine guy. I won't ever profess to be a canine guy, and if you have a canine question for me, then I'm going to refer you to somebody who's an expert. I know to stay in my lane, um, but I think I know a little bit about explosives and explosive chemistry, having been an explosives researcher and a bomb technician. Uh, we're real proud of our products, uh, specifically a product that is a non detonable training aid for canine folks, and uh, we encourage you to check out our website and uh, at least give us a try.
1: And, and specifically, what is that training aid? Because that'll lead me to, to some of the questions I have going forward from there. Um, tell us about the product, uh, you know, because obviously many canine handlers and trainers or vendors, um, you know, either if it's... Law enforcement agencies have it easier as far as obtaining or not really needing to obtain the ATF permit to carry their explosives, but obviously many trainers do, uh, whether it be also security companies or like out here in Vegas where I'm at. We have numerous casinos and there's various rules and restrictions. So what does this product do specifically and how does that help uh, individuals kind of in that struggling with that ability to uh, obtain ATF permitting?
2: We've uh, named it the odor print, and it is real odor. In other words, real explosives, real oxidizers, real propellants that are infused in cellulose. And they're locked in in a way that you don't end up with powder in a bag. And it presents the actual real odor for the dog to experience. We've been very careful to, A, not come in physical contact with it, and B, to not introduce any new odors. So this is uh, ruggedized with two aluminum discs that have paw prints cut out on both sides to allow odor to escape. And then we also use rivets to hold them together. We stamp the metal as opposed to putting a sticker or adding inks or adhesives. So we uh, feel pretty confident that it's about as uh, pure as what you're going to be able to get. We also put a rare earth magnet on it, so it makes it a little bit easier to, to place and maintain access to both sides of it. Okay. The big key to it is that it, while the actual weight of the material that's infused in that cellulose is small, it's spread out, and we take advantage of the surface area. And ultimately, and I, I hope that conversations like this will lead people to understand that it's not the weight that is significant, even though I know canine people will log weights, it's the surface area. Um, so, for example, if you had a metal 55 gallon drum full of explosives that could be between three and 500 pounds depending on the density of the explosive if you only open up the hole on the top of the drum you're only getting the surface area of that hole and so in reality even though our little uh, odor print uh, has significantly less weight it can produce more odor because of the surface area so uh, we're not saying that we can replace the 55 gallon drum we're just saying for illustration purposes, that it's all about surface area, not about weight.
1: Yeah, that's one of the main things I cover a lot too. Is the misconception that weight is a is a big uh, factor in the odor, and it's not. And my little analogy is very similar to yours. Is if I have a one gram vial of vinegar, and I can bring that to your nose, that little opening of that one of that vial, you know, it it takes you know, being within a few inches of your nose for you to recognize there's vinegar there. But I can pour out that vinegar onto a table, that one gram, and all of a sudden, within a couple of seconds, everybody in the space can smell it. The weight didn't change. The surface area changed because once we poured it out of the container, now more of that substance on the table is reacting with the environment, and now all of us that are near it can smell it. So, yeah, the the weight it is, is one of those misnomers or misunderstandings that weight is a... Uh, a factor for how much odor comes off. And that's not, it's the surface area. So the uh, great point on that. And so let me ask this. So what makes this product different than, let's say, TrueScent or Nest? Uh, some of the other ones that talk about scattering of uh, explosive material across silica. Uh,
2: well, we don't use silica. Um,
1: or the, right,
2: reason yeah. don't, yeah. the reason why we don't use silica is cellulose is basically background odor. To a dog and it also allows us to sp- suspend more material in that matrix as opposed to you know a, a blending um through the through the silica or any kind of coating like with petroleum and that sort of thing mm-hmm. we also have a, a significantly longer uh shelf life our odor prints have been tested even using t-a-t-p and h-m-t-d we've got uh, some units in the field that are nine months to a year and they're still putting off odor just like day one, so that's attributed to not just the the surface area and the way that it's in, infused in cellulose, but also the, in the packaging, which I hope we talk about in a little bit. Sure. The big, the big thing to uh, remember is that it's real material, and sometimes we get asked questions like, "Well, if it's actual explosives, how does it not blow up?" And the answer is, it really comes down to detonation physics, and I, I don't want to go too deep into that because it'll glaze everybody's eyes over (laughs) but um an explosive has to have a certain amount of energy per unit time in a geometry that will allow for it to blow up and if it is not in that geometry it doesn't matter what you do to it it cannot blow up it has to have a certain thickness has to have a certain diameter none of those criteria are met in the construction of the odor print. It cannot physically explode. If you can get it to explode, I got some chemists and physicists that would love to talk to you because it just (laughs) can't
1: happen. Well, and that's an important thing that you're bringing up is um, using chemistry and science to push ourselves forward when it comes to odor training aids um, versus just grabbing black powder off the shelf or going over to... um, If you happen to be in a mining area like I am in Nevada, there's, you know, a number of different resources that sell explosives uh, for the mining purposes. And a lot of things uh, when you go a certain route are highly contaminated or have various things involved. And and that's relevant. I mean, it's important to train with at a certain stage of training to train with whatever people can get their hands on, because that's the threat you face. However, you know, when we are starting with dogs, we want to present a clear picture of a chemical we're looking for because sometimes those that have heard my interviews with Nathan Hall or Michelle Mon and some of the other ones, that sometimes a very small amount of a chemical mixed with another chemical, let's say is a a large amount of, uh, and I know you you can take this further with C4, for example, but the plasticizer and tagnet versus the RDX component, the smaller chemical, the smaller amount of chemical actually gives off far more odor than the larger uh, amount of a separate chemical. So, you know, you may not know if you are taking a training aid uh, that you've obtained in some way or another that hasn't gone through some vetting or understanding what it is. You may be inadvertently training your dog on a non-target odor Uh, just because you didn't know that even though that, let's say, like I said, we'll use C4, um, that the plasticizer or tagnet was the highest amount of odor coming off and the RDX component was the lowest amount. And therefore, when you put your dog on pure RDX, your dog's not responding to it and you can't figure out why. And that's an example. And The same thing happens quite a bit with the drug dog world. Uh, Drug dog handlers deal with tons of contaminants, whether it be in heroin, meth, cocaine, etc., that the cutting agents may have a higher vapor pressure and put off far more odor than the actual target illegal material or chemical. And when all of a sudden you do an odor recognition test or you're training on somebody else's narcotics, you're not going to get a a response from your dog because it's so used to the contaminant that was the strongest thing. So this kind of gives us a good point to where you and I had already talked a little bit about this, but talk about how sometimes people will get a training aid from you, or you've heard somebody using a product, and then their argument or their statement is, "Oh, our dogs aren't hitting on it." Why is that happening?
2: Well, I can't speak to the behavior of dogs, um, but I can speak to the science of what that pure odor is. Um, our product, like um, I mentioned a minute a minute ago, will last a year. We recommend, or more. We recommend, however, that you change it out at about six months. And the reason for that is not that the odor doesn't exist. It's probably that you have added to the odor. And so um, a, a common thing that we, we've seen and learning more and more from uh, the canine community is that when people change out their odor or uh, they've been if my dog hits this great with my uh, odors, but then I go to this other department or train with somebody else. And all of a sudden my dog doesn't hit it. And probably the best guess is that you're adding to it. So using things like gloves, barrier paper, things like that to keep from adding to it uh, just seems to make sense. And uh, we, we definitely uh, try to preach what we call chemical hygiene. And that is that you're, you're making sure that you're, taking all the right steps to, um, not contaminate.
1: Yeah, no. And that's, and and to deal with that, there's, so I have two questions. So I'll go with the first, which would be, um, storage. What can you do storage wise and explain organic and inorganic and how those things work against each other, uh, as a helpful aspect, um, for storage and like basically giving, our listeners, um, a good or best practice when it comes to storage of whatever your materials are?
2: Uh, that, that is a, a critical component in, you know, the, the chemical hygiene or preservation of your odors. And that is the way it's stored. Uh, in addition to maintaining that the best practice of wearing gloves and so forth, um, the difference between organic and inorganic Uh, An organic has carbon in the molecule. That that means nothing to anybody. Um, However, if you think about an inorganic that does not have carbon, it's going to be something like a metal or glass. Um, The inorganics will not allow organic materials to pass through them. However, organic material will allow other organic material to pass through it. It's just a matter of time. So, for example, your drugs... Um, or explosive odors. If it's packed in a Ziploc bag, a Tupperware container, anything that is that is plastic, an arson bag, um, any of those things, it is going to pass through. It's just a matter of time. And uh, without naming names, there's a uh, a bag manufacturer who claims that it's they have a completely odor impermeable bag. Uh, we thought that was pretty cool. So we tested it out. It's a plastic bag, though, although it's a lot thicker. And we tested it with nitroglycerin, and it took two days. Two days, and the nitroglycerin passed through that plastic. And so the point is that uh, we did a—you you cannot use organics to to contain your odors. Uh, we did a side-by-side comparison with the method that we use to uh, package the odor prints, and that's by using metallized mylar bags. In fact, we double bag it just to make sure. And we did the same test, and weeks later, there was still no penetration through the bag. It just can't get through.
1: What happens if you open and close the bag fairly frequently? Does that degrade the quality of the seal? Uh, would that make a difference for the substance to the odor to get out?
2: Uh, well, certainly. I mean, anytime you use something, you're you're always going to um, degrade it with with each rep. Um, however, that's one of the reasons why we use. double bag it so you may get past one seal uh you may contaminate the outer portion of the inner inner bag but it's contained in a in an outer bag so uh those are all certainly possibilities um but that that's the i mean short of putting it in a glass jar with a with a metal lid or putting it in a a paint can um Mm -hmm. these are kind of the the better way to do things. The other thing to take in, into consideration, the reason why we chose those bags is the headspace volume. And headspace volume can you know be equated to basically the the air around uh whatever you're trying to contain inside that container. So whatever the air void is between the opening of the you know where the closure of the of the coke bottle and where the 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 liquid is inside the bottle. The more headspace volume you have, the more whatever that material is, is going to off gas and fill that volume. And it's going to do it every time you open the container. And so as a result, you're going to end up losing material. So what we've done is because these bags collapse down, we minimize the headspace volume, which is another reason why something like is volatile as TATP, which sublimates away, sticks around for a long time for us because we minimize the headspace volume at New Mexico tech. I had TATP samples that I worked with for two years and we never lost any product because we put it in a glass vial with a metal top and used the smallest possible container. So you, there there are ways to contain your odor and uh, not cross-contaminate everything in your kit.
1: Yeah. And this is why I've heard like Dr. Uh, Mon and Dr. DeGrieve talk about using the aluminized bags inside your glass jar as a and in, in, in why those of us that have been in laboratories have seen that practice quite a bit, where they have that uh, the use of the external the glass jar to house the substance inside that aluminized bag uh, to really help you know mitigate uh, really any contamination going on from, you know, as Lauren would say, Lauren De Grief would say, uh, keep your odors from talking to each other. So, that's right. yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's good because, you know, a lot of times things get lost in translation or uh something is read on a social media post and, and, you know, social media is as good as it is, is also it's dangerous equally uh, with information because, you know, someone may take out of that uh statement, oh, all I need is a plastic, all I need is an aluminized bag. And uh there's the other things where, well, the aluminized bag in the glass jar or the other way around, only using a glass jar creates, like you said, the headspace inside there and you lose a little bit of more material each time you do it that way, depending on how much or how it's packed, of course. And this is why I like uh uh another little product we're talking about is uh the tads. This is why tads are great because the tads, you know, can minimize the headspace. You have a specially designed membrane. You could put that inside its own aluminized bag if you wanted to or inside it. You don't have to, but just each of these little layers, these steps prevent your materials from talking to each other. And the critical part that we are all talking about, no matter what odor you're training on, is taking those proper steps to have a good set of training aids that are there to, in a sense, I use this word a lot, calibrate our dogs to make sure when we put these things out, these things are measured, we know what they are. We know what the breakdown is, and when, when the dog is sniffing it, we know its accuracy level. And when compared to finding the dogs finding these things out in the real world, we can say, yes, the dog found it, or my dog gave an indication because this is why. You know, we train our dogs using these practices to ensure the dog is only indicating to these specific chemicals which are illegal or contraband in some way or another. And when that dog does that indication, it means that that stuff is present no matter how it's broken down or how it's contaminated because of our beginning step, our best practices and how we store what we use and how often we change it out. Make sure that the dogs are very sound in what they're looking for, not confused or have uh, the odors muddied for lack of a better term uh, as to what they understood that they were identifying or indicating to. So, you also have something that I like, and, and you know and I've talked before online. I want to get my hands on it. Uh, it's what Lauren de created or worked with. Not she didn't necessarily create it, but she worked with this. I'm I'm totally spacing on the lady who really did this in the beginning. Uh, but the mod, the where the odors, you can actually place your substances separately, but the odorants can mix together, and the dog could smell. Uh, a a typical IED without the average person mixing it all together and becoming hazardous. This allows the odors to mix together and the dog gets the scent picture of what it might face realistically when someone gets their hands on these things and mixes them together to make the IED. So could you explain that a little bit and and the value to something like that?
2: Absolutely. I don't want to do a disservice to uh, Lauren. She is absolutely brilliant has dedicated her her all of her education her, her graduate school work uh, postdoc work and her current work all on canine olfaction and uh, she is an amazing person to work with and we're really grateful to have uh, a working relationship with her as well um, she created the mixed odor delivery device had the uh, aid of some physicists and other folks to really Fine tune this product uh, so that, like you said, you can put various substances in the device. the The odor that emanates from that is that complex odor from uh, a fuel oxidizer mixture. And most commonly, people think about fuel oxidizer mixtures like ammonium nitrate and fuel oil. oil um, You can also have ammonium nitrate and aluminum powder, which are really popular for exploding targets. Uh, both of which I saw. Uh, in heavy use downrange also uh, potassium chlorate and different fuels is another dangerous combination but the mixed odor delivery device allows you to mix those that allows the odors to mix together without actually mixing them and creating a homemade explosive that now you have to deal with so uh it is a uh, pvc cylinder not like a pvc pipe but it's a it's a heavy duty uh about a five six inch diameter. PVC uh, chunk, so to speak, that you can pull apart. And the reason why I describe it like that is people get concerned about tipping it over, and it, it's robust. Let me tell you. So if, if the dog aggresses, uh, they're probably going to get to knock it over. But if the dog just has it, it's some type of incidental contact, they're not going to flip it over. Um, inside of this uh, cylinder that you can pull apart in halves. Are four chambers that allow you to put whatever it is that you want and then you place the top back on there is a small orifice that you can adjust the size or the output of odor and then there's a, a section that kind of is a recessed that allows for that odor to pool in the on top of the device that way that with, with being able to pull like that the dog's nose can come in contact with the odor without coming in contact with the chemicals themselves. If the dog does come in contact with it or whatever, you can clean it off and then switch to a new odor. Um, We got involved with the mod uh, because they were uh, the the company called odor trace that uh, sells that. They, they, we're, we're trying to market this to, to folks, and everybody thought, wow, this is great. That's a, it's a phenomenal uh, tool for us to use, but what do I put in it? And so that company came to us and said, all right, well, you've seen bombs. What are the chemicals that go in that? And so we populated the kit with the fuels and oxidizers that have been used in real-world incidents, and we give you a recipe book on how to mix these things together, the different files, as well as a reference to those actual incidents so if somebody asks you why did you work your dog on uh on ammonium nitrate and aluminum powder why did you work your dog on ammonium nitrate and icing sugar well these places where this has been used this is places where terrorists have, have, have put those chemicals into into operation and so uh we we market the the kits and the uh dogs seem to do really well with them
1: I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canine's Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple app store called search dog timer SDT and we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys, feedback input, uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the
0: Apple App Store. Canines Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each or you can join the Ford Canine Club Channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club Channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT, Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer, Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month.
1: Yeah, and you bring up the important part is many of us in training, both let's just say in your basic form of training, just doing simple, you know, whether it be odor recognition or simple hides, even throughout the way we put out our substance very rarely, you know, I know some do this, so I can't, I'm not speaking for everybody, but there's many who just put out the training aid. They don't try to contain it. They don't try to mimic the situation that the substance would be found in. So whether if it's a bomb, uh, why isn't it set up basically like an impression cooker, for example, or set up as a typical IED that's that's commonly found. Um, and many it's because they're A not allowed, or B, they don't have the technical skill set to do so safely. So what ends up happening is the repeated training for the dog is always odor that gets reinforced as presented in a simplistic way. And then operationally or when tested operationally, when the dog is given an opportunity or a search has something in it that is in a real life type setup, the dogs don't either don't show any response to it or show very minimal and it causes the handler to attempt to guess as to what the dog is saying. So it's important that utilizing tools like the mod can help you create a scent picture that mimics what they're actually going to face for real. And that leads to the other question I have is, you know, you coming from a EOD background as a technician and your vast experience, both, you know, domestically and internationally and within war zones, what should handlers, besides the basics of their dogs knowing odor, but what are some of the the main things that handlers should do to prepare to to train, to face a real legitimate threat. And I'll give a quick story for one of the teams I just did here. Uh, I worked with a gentleman. There was a bomb dog that was trained with the company I was with before, and we paired it with a highway patrol. And then from that point, we did a lot more operational style training together. And within a short period of time of after him certifying, uh, he gets a call. There's There was, was a rally downtown in Vegas, Uh, An individual, somehow the family notified law enforcement that this guy might have some type of explosives and so forth. So long story short, he ends up going to this one area. It's metal. It's um, a big wooden storage boxes um, at a storage facility. His dog goes up, searches the outside, indicates. Uh, Inside was um, mini pipe bombs but made with the guy had gotten himself a bunch of Russian ammunition and was just basically taking the bullets apart and pouring the uh, smokeless powder into these uh, small, small uh, pipe bombs with fuses on them. So, uh, and then a few weeks after that or a month or two, I can't remember exactly when, they get another uh, call, and this one was he just did a search, you know, a, a little after the operations team made entry to this person's house, but the house had a jar full of TATP in it. And his dog was kind of casting around uh, when they were, you know, when the techs visually could see the, uh, the jar. And, of course, procedures were done from there. But so a handler right there went from a pipe bomb type setup with, some unique, uh, smokeless powder that, um, his, obviously his dog gave a good solid alert to, but he was wondering, well, it's from Russia, it might be different, uh, to a TATP type call. So, as a handler and as a, from a technician, what would you say is important for handlers to train? Like, what are the common things if you had to spend a majority of your time training on these type setups? What would you say to do? Well,
2: that's a great question, and uh, what we uh, promote is that we want we want people to think about uh, the, the core constituents of the chemical makeup of these various propellants, oxidizers, uh, and explosives. And so we call them the big four. PETN, uh, RDX, TNT, and of course you can't forget nitroglycerin. It still exists in the world. But basically, Military explosives are going to be made up of RDX, PETN, and TNT, some combination thereof. Uh, C4, its energetic component is RDX. Composition A5 is RDX. Sheet explosive can be RDX, but in most cases it's PETN. Composition B3 is TNT and RDX. Uh, Penalite boosters are PETN and TNT. So there's kind of a common theme, and I could go on and on and on and, and, and mm. before death, but the point is that in that in that military uh, and, and somewhat commercial use of explosives, it really comes down to some core constituents. and if your dog is is well uh, it, it, like you pointed out before, if the dog clearly understands what it's looking for, then it should be able to hit any of those combinations which is one of the reasons why we chose the the, the method that we did in terms of uh, using RDX and, and, and PETN. This stuff comes straight from the factory. It has not been adulterated. It has not been altered for uh, further processing. Um, it is It has been lab tested. We know exactly what's in this stuff. Um, you need to go out and train on combination odors, but... Based on input that we've had from people like you and and other great trainers, if they understand those basics, then all the different combinations are 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 covered. In terms of oxidizers, uh, ammonium nitrate because it's ammonium nitrate, and it's very prevalent in the, around the world in in use for commercial explosives as well as for homemade explosives and IEDs. Potassium chlorate is critical because all fireworks that go boom have potassium chloride or potassium perchlorate in them. Um, and your dog can't tell the difference between the two, or if they do, they indicate the same way. Um, and lastly, uh, potassium nitrate. Now, potassium nitrate is found in all black powders. And the, the, last, the, uh, the last two that we uh, promote are two different types of double-based smokeless powder. All double base smokeless powders will have nitrocellulose as a base, and then the other energetic will either be DNT, the skinny sister to TNT, or nitroglycerin. And so we've chosen two powders that have been lab tested, and we know that they're very heavy in that second energetic of DNT or nitroglycerin. And so between the two, if your dog is working on those, it covers basically all 880 variations of that. And in the case of the the guy that was working against um Russian smokeless powder, it's gonna have nitrocellulose and probably nitroglycerin. So even though the ratios may be different, they may have different stabilizers and so forth, that dog was absolute absolutely gonna nail that.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of what we we talked about with him is you know. When he first heard from the techs on scene, they're like, oh, wow, this is unique. He, how did he get his hands on some of this Russian material? And apparently a lot of it was really old uh, stuff he had gotten from either uh, old, you know, Army Navy stores or things like that. Um, so it was it was unique for, you know, again, he was a new handler. So some of this stuff was shocking to him, which like we told him, hey, it shows you your dog is sound. It knows. The odors it's looking for, the chemicals that it's looking for, uh, despite, like you just said, the different makeups of it or the different uh, amounts of it. There's a common thing that happens a lot of time. This is, you know, I, I know it. I know the military is pretty much getting rid of water gel out of the uh, scent kit. And we both know there's the ammonium nitrate component to that. But sodium chlorate, why is that not as common as it used to be? Because I, back when I first did this, you, you know, PC and SC were the main things you use quite a bit. But obviously, over recent times, um, uh, sodium chlorate just doesn't really make the list that often anymore.
2: Well, nobody uses sodium chlorate, to yeah. be honest with <laughs> you. And, and reason, the reason is that uh, uh, it's too hygroscopic. So, you you may make uh, a flash powder using sodium chloride, um, maybe some sulfur and aluminum, but if you don't use it fairly soon or you don't put something in there to absorb the moisture, you're not going to have flash powder anymore. No,
1: yeah, and and I and I learned this when I was in Florida. Um, man, it it just <laughs> it sucks up water like a sponge, and it, and it's some of the things that we always had to be careful with. Ammonium nitrate was very similar. Uh, We had, um, depending on how, you know, us back when I was first learning, oh, you just pour the ammonia nitrate into a canvas bag and it'll be perfect. Yeah, put it out three or four times, especially in Florida weather, and it's a bunch of crap after (laughs) after that, Uh, especially if you put it out right after a a Florida afternoon rain shower and uh, you let it sit for two or three hours uh, as you run dogs through an area. But And that goes back to our, our point earlier about how often things change, uh, you know, chemically from when you first have it to just even a few months, you know, later, what you really have. Or those that love to store their stuff in the trunk of the car, you know, in the heat or the back of their SUV where that heat just beats down and, or that car reaches temperatures of 160, 180 degrees during the day, depending on where you work. And your training aids are just baking in there. So
2: The chemicals don't like to don't like the thermal cycle and one of the best ways to get something to uh off gas a lot is to heat it up
1: yep <laughs> so, uh, so talk yeah. about so, there's something that you, made me think of this too we just said that why are um best way to ask this question so obviously there's various types of metal containers Explain some of the risks that come with certain chemicals in the explosive side of things when you use a metal container for uh, as as a vessel for the training aid.
2: Most of the most of the metals that you would use to uh, if they're uncoated. So, for example, you can get epoxy lined paint cans. Uh, we usually use an anti static bag before putting something in in metal. Um, metals will act as a catalyst and promote a catalyst is something that's going to promote change. So in addition to heating and cooling and all that kind of good stuff, if you introduce something that can, can start a reaction or, uh, promote a reaction, then, uh, that's not good for your odors and it it, it will change them. Um, in fact, that, uh, to nerd out for a second, there are actually, Ways of using uh, combinations of metal alloys to cause TATP to react and go away all by itself, not energetically. So that's just—I mean—that's a—that's an example of how those things are detrimental to uh, the storage of, of odors. So it's important to make sure that you don't you don't have uh, metal in contact with with your chemicals and with the odor prints. What we do is. Um, we're, we're embedding on one side of uh, the cellulose, uh, but we use two different layers and we put them face to face. So they're not in contact with the aluminum, but, uh, yes, you get, you have to be careful with, uh, with dealing with metals, uh, anytime you're around acid, uh, especially something like sulfuric acid that can be very dangerous, uh, not just for your dog, but it can cause your, it can cause a detonation, quite frankly.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that I was also noticing as I was going over that list you made, one of the things you didn't have written down or didn't talk about, and and it's a good point because it comes up from time to time, uh, urea nitrate. Can you talk about that and, you know, its relation to ammonia nitrate and things like that?
2: Yeah, great point. Um, Urea nitrate is really seen in the Middle East, and uh, it was used in the attack on World Trade Center 93. But... uh, a common question that we could ask is, what is a bomb going to look like and what, what is it going to consist of? And it really depends on where you are and who the bomber is, because everything boils down to uh, knowledge, resource and access. The guys that did World Trade Center in were trained in the Middle East. They knew they could distill their urine down to get urea, to make urea nitrate. Uh, it would have been a whole hell of a lot easier for them to go get bags and bags of avoiding nitrate, but they didn't know that. That's not the way they were trained even though they had very um, ready access to it. Ammonium nitrate and urea nitrate are not interchangeable. I'm sorry, urea itself are not interchangeable. You cannot take prills of urea and then add aluminum powder and get it to go boom. You have to go through a chemical process. So you have to have a nitrating solution with urea prills to make it into urea nitrate. The other thing about urea nitrate is that it is a tertiary explosive, meaning that you have to have a booster or a secondary explosive like C4 or TNT to get this stuff to go. So it's just not ideal for use unless you're forced to do that or that's what your training uh, comes down to. And as far as, again, the interchangeability of urea and ammonium nitrate, going through that chemical process like with TATP, HNTD, urea nitrate, you have baked a cake. You cannot extract out the eggs and flour out of that cake once it's baked. So you've created a new molecule, a new, uh, a new parent molecule that is going to off-gas with different stuff. So just because something is, for example, with uh, TATP, just because it's made with acetone and hydrogen peroxide, that doesn't mean it off-gases acetone or hydrogen peroxide. Off gas is a whole new thing.
1: Which is one of the main reasons you hit the point of why I always educate people about, you know, they get all on the cocktail method of training odors. And like I tell them, I'm like, you know, I do two things. Okay. If you believe it, which you obviously you do, do it. And then let's go right to an odor lineup. I'll bring one of the chemicals that's in your lineup. We're not going to use yours from your box that you have. Well, if you fully believe that that works, we'll take one of these other chemicals. Let's just let's just take, uh, let's take ammonium nitrate. You you know in your little box that you've done your cocktail with. You got your black powder, your smokeless powder, your ammonium nitrate. You put all these different things in this box to do your cocktail. Okay, so I'll go get ammonium nitrate. I should be able to put this out, and your dog should indicate on it if you believe this works. And and what what I try to get them to understand is the reason why your belief is that it works is because when you go and separate it, you're doing the same thing I do from the beginning, which is teach the dog the odor, out, you know, one at a time and give it value. The point you just made, which is what a lot of the chemists make, is there are things that you don't know when you put them together in a small space and they start interacting with each other molecularly, you create unknowingly a different type of odorant. And let alone, like we talked about a little while ago, the uh, profound odor that might be off-gassing much higher than the other one. So when you're reinforcing your dog, you're reinforcing your dog to the strongest smell. And you're creating a preference indirectly of something over the other things. Even though the other things are there, many dogs will go into a room, look for that one they've been reinforced for the most, what the dog took out of that mixture as the prominent uh, chemical. And then you, later on, when the dog's not responding to the other chemicals, because I've never had anybody from a cocktail, when you immediately separate them, the dog hits every single one of them perfectly. It does, I have yet, you know, and if, if someone can do it, please, let's test it. I'll be more than happy to bring uh, the scent wheels out, do an odor lineup, and let's prove it. Um, but what we do know is when you take a singular substance and you condition it and reinforce it, it has value, the next one done the same way, they, ha- they create an equal value or closer to equal value than the mixture simply because of what we just said. We, we don't know at times what gets created when you mix different things together and then which one is the highest off-gassing as opposed to the other ones. So though we understand the dog at times can single out a chemical amongst other chemicals, the whole beef stew theory or the pizza theory, uh, doesn't give you the license or the understanding that, Oh, I should throw everything together. The dogs automatically going to know it. Cause we also know that's not always true, but there'll be the, you know, you got a lot of vendors out there, a lot of trainers like I've done this for years and it works. Yeah, it works in a sense, but you're making more work for yourself because you created a system where you're just reinforcing those odors singularly later on. So you're, if you really if it really did work, you should be able to pull out any one of those odors separately and have somebody else bring in that same chemical but in a different setup, and the dog should bang it out if that was really true.
2: Yeah, the I'll give you two examples of uh where those things become kind of complex in terms of um how you imprint, and again, I'm not a dog guy, but I'll speak to this chemically. Um if you imprint imprint your dog on pure PETN, they should find basically anything that has PETN in it. However, if you are harvesting PETN or using deck cord or sheet explosives as your source of PETN, you're also adding something um, with a very high vapor pressure. That is a chemical that is used to keep those plastics, like the the plastic sheeting on the inside of deton cord, or the plastic that makes sheet explosive flexible, um, you're also adding that to it. And we saw an example of this uh, not too long ago where dogs were running in a a restaurant that was closed down and about half the dogs showed a tremendous amount of interest on the beer taps. And the reason they showed interest is because on the other side where the beer taps were, were uh, probably a dozen different vinyl tubing uh or pieces of r- uh, vinyl tubes running to the beer taps and so that same chemical that's present in deck cord and in sheet explosives was very prevalent at the beer taps and the dogs would would uh, go to the beer taps and they would just kept searching and searching and searching and it seems logical that what the dog was looking for. The dog found the one thing that it can always find very easily, and that's the thing with the high vapor pressure, but it was looking for that other component and just couldn't find it. So uh, it, you have to be really careful in selecting something that is as, as pure as the as target odor uh, it should be. Also, uh, looking at using C4 as your source of RDX is not a good idea either. The reason for that is. The, the whole parts per billion and quadrillion and all that stuff just that makes my head melt sometimes. So, what we did is we took the vapor pressure in terms of parts per billion and made those numbers positive so that it's a little bit easier to understand. And so, if you look at RDX, RDX, we're just going to assign it a, a positive value of uh, 432, 436. The tag uh, DMNB has a value of 207,000. A reclamation, a reclamation solvent that is used to make RDX, but is also part of uh, the binder plasticizer part, has a value of 666600000000 Now Compare that to that little 436. Your dog is going to run past pure RDX and go to that solvent before it's going to find RDX.
1: Oh yeah. So, and, and I've seen that numerous times and you and I right now are even having a good discussion, uh, offline. We're talking about, we've been talking about firearms and firearm detection and the research has been going on and there's still some good ongoing research. And we, we have, like we talked about some ideas already of what we should look at. And the, the thing that you and I can definitely agree on is if you train on smokeless or black powder and you think your dog's going to find a gun, you're definitely wrong. <laughs> So, the, and we both, you know, have seen that has been a common assumption in the firearm or, or people who train dogs in firearms are like, oh, if you just train smokes or black powder, your dog will find firearms. And that is a, a vast assumption um, that, you know, we are now validating as that's not really the thing that the dog is smelling the most of. Uh, you and I have been talking about gunshot residue and the byproducts of that and, and what comes from that. So that is still, and we're seeing as, as Todd and I have talked, we're kind of seeing the same thing uh, from actually two different angles. Uh, the, he's worked with individuals and you got, and I'll let you explain it more, but uh, where there's the component you talk about and what I see with the research we're doing is very, very similar um, where, the dog is when we train the dog on the firearm itself, it's a fired firearm. We've done fired, we've done fired and clean and we've done new, which is still technically fired once. Um, And we are going through the different chemicals that are coming out of it and trying, trying to understand best. Is it the firearm as a mixture with all the components, the solvents, the oils, the metal, the uh, gunshot residue as a one cent picture? Does that is what the dog does best or uh, explain a little bit about what you guys have seen and what you guys talk about when it comes to the uh, firearm training
2: well, what we what we looked at uh, from the from the chemistry standpoint um, is what is in the headspace of of a spent shell casing or a, a spent firearm and what is most prevalent is it sticks around for a long time what's most prevalent is actually the stabilizers so, yes, you have nitrocellulose you have nitroglycerin or nitrocellulose and, and DNT. Those are volatile chemicals, and even though they they burn, um you're not going to get a 100 percent burn of all the all the energetics. What does stick around are the stabilizers. Um, and they adhere to, to surfaces, and they adhere to surfaces for like a year or more. That's what their job is. Their job is to stick around, and so uh, what we've used is uh, uh, some chemicals that the dog with the with ATF's record for the largest, I and mean, ATF is a recording agency, not an ATF dog, but record for the largest illegal weapon seizures imprinted on the stabilizers. Um, we've done a number of searches, literature searches of scholarly articles, and they've all confirmed the same thing that these are the things that are prevalent. Um, uh, after a shell casing is fired, after a weapon's been fired, um, that you're going to have some uh, explosive odor byproducts. In other words, uh, combustion products. Those are, are very volatile, and they'll go away soon. What remains, months, uh, weeks, and months after, is is the stabilizers. So uh, we're always looking to to tweak that uh, formulation to make it better. So through your research, you find that um, there's another component that we add, we should add to it. We'll definitely do that. But there've been some great successes with uh, imprinting dogs and the stabilizers and continuing to train with those.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and I'm looking forward to getting uh, one of those samples from you and I can run my dog on it because it's just information for me too, because like I said, we're only in the beginning phase of what uh, we've been doing at Texas Tech with this. So uh, you know, and as you and I were talking about, we, we all that geek out on the science and, and things like that, uh, we all go, oh, my gosh, this research says this and we have to follow that. And you like you and I were saying, it's it's tempting at times to want to follow some of the stuff. But we've both learned you, you have to let more research happen. And then as there's more research, because you know the joke we always make in the science world is like the the like oh today you can drink coffee it's great for you tomorrow research says you drink coffee it'll kill you so it's uh we we both know that the the extra research sometimes research looks at specific things and sometimes there's a general generality or there's a singular factor that once it changed all of a sudden that research was out the window so um, it's cool to see that you know coming at this. Uh, what Dr. Tiedemann's doing is the first time it's been specifically done for this purpose and other research has been a byproduct. So it'll be cool to kind of see all this kind of come together and where, and where it, what it tells us, because as we you and I were talking about offline and those that have heard this podcast before, research isn't about being right or being, or proving right or proving wrong. It's about finding what the truth is. And that always has to be our goal and our focus. So I always want to, uh, you know, like you just said, you know, there's stuff that, you know, I'm going to share with Dr. Tiedemann. She may have already seen it, but share with what you guys have, what you guys do. Also expose my dog to that material just to out of curiosity, because I'm curious to see what he does when there's something like that isolated. Um, because with him, I've just been doing straight up firearms only and shell casings and that's it. And it's been, uh, done through odor lineup and it's been done, you know, out in the field. But I would love to take something specific and see what he does then. And, and you know, doesn't prove things one way or the other. It could prove maybe what, I was, what I've been doing has a flaw or maybe it shows that what I'm doing is doing right on the right, I'm on the right track. So uh, either way, it's good. This is why we have to be in the industry open-minded to peer review, open-minded to, hey, have you tried this? Have you thought of this? Um, versus the, oh, I've done this for 30-something years. I've trained thousands of dogs. I don't need to hear anything that you're doing or anything that's going on. You know, I know what we do works kind of concept. You know, if we want to move our needle forward, if we want to get better, or if we want to kind of um, face sometimes nowadays the scrutiny that never existed before that now does, we need to be open to looking at things a different way. Um, so that way we can either confirm, Hey, yeah, we've been doing it the right way for all these years. And that is right. Or yep. All you actually really need to do is make some small tweaks here and there. And you're that much better. You're that much more efficient than you were before. So all of this, you know, the, the gun, uh, firearm detection stuff was a cool thing from uh, hearing your standpoint and where I'm in the middle of it right now. So I have one other question because this comes up a lot with, um, doing explosive dog handlers is. Uh, when a handler does a search and gets an indication or many times, I love this one. I always joking around with them though. Uh, my dog showed interest over here. So as a tech, what is important information that you need or you want from the dog team before you make your next move from the, the EOD tech side of the equation?
2: That's a great question. Uh i was I was uh downrange and some canine handlers were out doing training and they witnessed a detonation from uh some people doing some work they're doing some uh some some site prep for a new building and they took note of the fact that in that detonation they saw kind of uh some Red almost looks like fireworks coming off of this of this explosion, and they relayed that to me. I went to go do the post blast investigation, and I found batteries, wires, um, other types of debris that could have been a container, but I also found um, something that was part of a of a uh, U.S. military submunition called a Blue ninety seven. And I just happen to remember that the Blue 97 has a a metal in it that causes fires to start. In addition, it just so happens that it gives off this red, almost like star cluster type effect. I could have easily gone down the path of this was an IED, we've been attacked because of the the evidence that I saw. But because those canine handlers pointed out what they observed, it took me in a completely different path. That look, these guys just ran over an old submunition, and it's not a big
0: deal. It it went boom. We're done. So anything that
2: the the handler can observe, uh, things like, for example, I, I see something that looks like silver paint or a gray smudge on the side of this package or or wherever it is that your dog is indicating that that tells me a lot because. If you add aluminum powder to an explosive or add aluminum powder to an oxidizer, I now know roughly that it is more sensitive than it would have been. That, that changes things for me. So those little details, that, that, that observation can really help us. So the big thing is take note of everything that you saw. Don't interpret. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Take note of those things and convey that. And that can really help us out a lot. Another example would be the Boston Marathon bombings. What color was the smoke when those bombs went off? Do you remember?
1: Um, if I remember right, it was a dark, was a, a really dark colored smoke, correct? It was a billowing white smoke. Okay. Sorry. So I was complete opposite. <laughs> 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 it's been a while yeah. since I watched it. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. But, yeah,
2: but, yeah but most people don't take note of that. Yeah. So if you do, you know, what did you observe? Again, don't interpret. What did you observe? Billowing white smoke. That tells us that there's a tremendous amount of oxygen present. And What types of things will have that? Something that is an oxidizer. So acid chloride is found in, in, uh, in fireworks that go boom. Uh, different types of gunpowders. All of those things are going to give off that billowing white smoke. It takes us down a path immediately based on that. If we if like you said, if it was really dark smoke. That means it's fuel rich. Commercial and military explosives are often fuel rich. If heaven forbid you see brown smoke, well, it's nitrogen rich. But any of those things that you observe, again, you don't have to try to figure it out yourself. Just tell us what you saw.
1: Yeah. No. It's and it's funny because you know just what I just did right there. So cognition, one of the things I teach is about memory and um, because that's one of the things, you know, the Boston marathon bombing, you know, I've seen it on TV, but I haven't watched as much as I have, let's say many other military type explosives or other explosions I've watched over and over again that have a much higher fuel ratio. So it's going to obviously burn darker like you just pointed out. But so where does my memory pull from? It pulled from something not related to that, but when questioned, this is why I like you just like you said, it's important to take notes immediately or to in some way catalog something, you know, uh, because what you will pull from later on may be based off an experience more so than what was just there or what you, you know, saw. And that's that happens a lot. We see that, you know, law enforcement with witnesses, you know, they'll give a description, but if you waited too long, let's say you, you interviewed them weeks later they the memory gets hazy and mixed in with other memories and all of a sudden now it's something else versus really what it was so um the importance of what we just what you just brought up there and even my uh, conversation in that was um you need to debrief right away and you need to have something really quick you know to things that you can stand out to you predominantly in your memory so that you can quickly recite that or give that to the technician or whoever you're reporting to so that information get passed along. And even there, you have to be careful because if you pass it to many people, by the time we have phone game, it reaches you, it's changed. So uh, most times that I know of, most techs do want to talk to the person who saw something or the dog handler who worked the area. So that way they get the information firsthand, not handed down from a supervisor or who you know, took it or dispatcher from a radio or what have you. So
2: things like um, how big is it is, is really important because that starts to determine, you know, an evacuation area uh, or the size of the cordon. Did you see anything protruding from it? You know, obviously wires are, are important, but just those little things, um, are, are, are a big help, but, uh, don't ever think that some little detail that, Uh, You happen to notice is insignificant.
1: I mean, look at the Ted Kaczynski, you know, the Unabomber case, how many of those minor details ended up, you know, being so unique to him uh, because he was trying to be so obscure. Uh, Made the difference either from the post blast, you know, evidence found. And then later on, of course, how he wrote and how he spoke and things like that. Uh, all you know became unique factors that were evidence that made the difference in in making the case. So, all all really good and important information. And I do this a lot with handlers is when they get uh in training or if we're doing scenario based training, they their dog gives them the indication. They come out and make contact with me. I play the role as the technician, and I'll say, "Okay, what do you got? Okay, what was in front of that? What was behind that? What was to the left? What was to the right?" What were you standing on? Was there, what, what was the floor like? Or was it concrete? Where, you know, where were you at? Um, and a lot of times, the you know, if I run, let's say, multiple teams on this, the some of the answers I get, especially when it's a parking lot and there's a number of cars there, the color of cars that I get that are near where the dog actually indicated is way off from what it was or just like random made-up colors just because when we put ourselves under stress, it, it does affect your memory and you won't retain things as well because you, the way how your body's functioning at that time because you're stressed. So it's important to, you know, one of the things I know you've heard of it is calm breeds calm. And when you're calm, it, you're, you're much better about taking information in and being able to pass that information down to whoever you need to pass it to. So uh, by conducting training that applies pressure to you and makes you deal with that, will actually make you a better resource for information when stuff is real. And to to give you, you know, a person like yourself, a, a technician, uh, vital information that could totally change how you may approach or as I've heard the Navy EOD guy say, sneak up on the device, uh, the best way to do that. So all really good, uh, good info there. So uh, do you have anything to add to that or... Uh, well, one
2: one thing to consider if you if there is a a threat, so to speak, and I know sometimes canine handlers or canine teams get thrust into uh, go find the ambush for us. Um, having somebody uh, to look out for the handler, I think, is a good idea. So, for example, uh, it, when I was in the unit and we were preparing to go, you know, infill to the last cover and conceal to a target. Um, Oftentimes, if if there's certain types of threats, my job is to find booby traps. But who is watching out for me? Because I'm looking for something a, a totally different threat. And the same thing I think can apply to to canine teams because that's essentially what you're doing. You're looking for you're looking for a threat, and who's looking out for you? So, for example, the, the handler is paying attention to the dog. Who's looking externally uh, to make sure that the handler is taken care of and is not walking into a human threat because that's not really what you're thinking about at that point. So I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily uh, something that people uh, think about or routinely adopt, but uh, I always think about the, the canine handler walking to the ambush before we do.
1: Oh yeah. One of the things that we do and I, I interview the guys from uh, NYPD transit bureau is they always have uh, typically another dog handler spotting for them. So that way, you know, you don't have somebody who's never worked with a dog team before and all they want to do is watch your dog work. But you have somebody who's knows their, their role or their lane is to be looking out for you, looking out for things that stand out in the environment while you are working your dog. So uh, it's a great, great thing to do is to, especially when, like we said, I, I talk about Proactive versus reactive searches as a bomb dog handler. Proactive is what you typically do. You're just your your normal searches prior to somebody showing up, and your reactive is you're there for a reason. It's a bomb threat. It's something like that. Um, and your TTPs or your tactics, training, and principles how you deal with that is going to be different uh, between a proactive and a reactive. So, in reactive searches, uh, it was always mandatory that there's a spotter there to run with you. Um, whose job is to do exactly what you just said, to help reduce your risk or to help maybe maybe they actually even see something before you and your dog even get near it. So therefore, you don't have to get near it and risk setting it off. So, yeah, very, very important to, again, you know, have training that works on odor, but also then have training that's based on scenarios and getting you prepared to deal with the real-world environment. Exactly. So... Well, I want to, before we go, uh, thank you first for coming on, but how do people find you? What's your guys' website and email for you? So if they have more questions, also where to go to get some of the products that we've talked about today from the mod to the scent prints um, and the other, you know, obviously if you're a unit and you're looking for explosives, I know you guys also provide explosive training aids to those that are licensed or able to obtain it. Uh, How do we get a hold of you? How do we find you? All that kind of good stuff.
2: You can find us on Facebook um, at Precision Explosives. We're also on Instagram. And then uh, we have a website, and it's PRE as in Pre or Precision-EXP.com. Uh, hyphen PRE-EXP.com. P-R-E uh, to order products, you can go to our website, uh, and uh, we've got a drop-down menu. and we, we don't call them odors. We call them flavors just for the fun of it. Uh, and order what what you like we do offer the uh mixed order delivery device the mod in two different sizes one actually fits in some of the uh, uh some of the sit boxes and also uh if you're interested in tads uh we sell tads in cooperation with michelle Bonds' uh, company Psy canine we sell the pads but ours are loaded with odor prints and so or powders, uh, whatever it is that you're, that you're interested in. But if you want something that is a high explosive odor, you can get it in a note or print. You don't, don't need an FEL.
1: Yeah. And that's important for, even for, obviously, like we talked about a while ago, the TATP or HMTD, the stuff that's way more hazardous that you're not going to be able to get anyway, unless you happen to be training with, um, a EOD unit or somebody that was qualified to create or make the TATP to be used for that training. I know the feds do that from time to time, but, um, That's that's one of the best things I think about having the print, uh, the scent print, is that allows you to get that exposure for your dog in a very safe way to do it. Uh, I know a friend of mine was doing one of those joint training sessions, and as the dog was approaching the concrete block, the uh, TATP detonated, and luckily enough, him and his dog were just far enough away and from what they gathered was when it was created, it was, it just wasn't evenly mixed or there was something wrong with the mixture. So just the ambient temperature, you know, when it changed, you know, went from being made to put out, had it detonate. And it was just luck and timing that they didn't get uh, injured from that uh, detonation. So
2: Res- residual acid is usually the culprit when a uh, detonates all by its little self uh, and heat. So uh, if you, If you don't know what you're doing uh, or don't have much experience with it, you can make some mistakes and sometimes people get hurt.
1: Yeah. And that's not uh, one we want to have a mixed mistake on at all. So, Exactly. And that's again why the scent print pads are very vital and an important tool for that toolbox, just because like we talked about, it allows you to get that dog uh, exposure to it and do so safely
2: the uh they're safe to use um it is the pure thing and aside from the peroxides they're only 50 bucks a piece so yeah you can get a complete kit um minus the peroxides for only 450 dollars with the peroxides it's 600 but that's a whole that's that's
1: That's a lot cheaper than there's a lot of you know different products out there and even getting a sometimes a full kit that's still cheaper so I, i i thank you for the for sharing that information and like we said, those that are interested know how to contact you. I will put those, uh, your email, website, and everything like that in the, the show notes. So that way people can quickly just go to the show notes and click and go right there. Um, but again, thank you for taking your time out today to do this interview. Um, I'm also open. Uh, I would like to do potentially a webinar with you if that's something you're interested in. So that way the listeners that have heard stuff that want to learn more, we can do something and maybe in a visual way, if you're interested in something like that.
2: Absolutely. Uh, we love doing that kind of stuff. People learn best when they have multiple senses, um, that that are, that are engaged, like, uh, seeing, hearing, feeling, touching, that kind of good stuff. So we're all about it. And um, we're always open to, to new ideas and We look forward to working with you. And thank you for the opportunity to share some ideas.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you again. And for everybody listening, that concludes this episode of canines talking sense where it's okay to be nosy.